Well, guys, we've been in Proverbs for 14 years. But we're, we're winding it down. We got through the first nine chapters, and we've got a bunch of chapters left that have a lot of wisdom and some pithy little Proverbs that cover a multitude of subjects. Tonight, I want to focus on two Proverbs, and I want to illustrate them to you. The first one is Proverbs 16, verse 9. One of my favorite Proverbs because it puts everything in perspective. Proverbs 16, 9 states this. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. The mind of man, your mind, plans your way. Uh, how many of you guys have uh, day timers or some kind of, yeah, all right. You, you might have a big one, you might have a small one. Uh, you were probably on the phone today making some appointments. Uh, you were planning next week. Uh, you're uh, you, you're going to meet with this guy for lunch. You're going to do this or you're going to do that. Some of you guys are high tech. You have the PDAs, uh, the, the Palm Pilots. How many? Of you, how many I, when I walked in here tonight, I saw a guy in the hallway right over there with his PDA, and. Um, those things never look to me like they're worth the trouble. But you've got yours out. It's a what? It is. Well, then shut it off if it's a phone. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding you. But that's great. You get video on that, and you're probably watching Fox News even as I'm talking to you. But it's amazing, the stuff that's out there. Now, why do we have that stuff? Because those are tools that help you to plan. Those are tools that help you to keep your life organized. And see, we've got to do that to function. Uh, you, you can't be a sluggard. Proverbs speaks against the sluggard. The sluggard never does get out of bed. He never plans. He, he doesn't put his life into some kind of organization. Now, not everyone's organized, but if you're not, you've got to find somebody who is to help you. The mind of man plans his way. Uh, if you're goal-oriented, you might set 90-day goals. You might have a, uh, even a seven-year strategic plan. Um, Nothing wrong with planning. Planning is a good thing. Uh, we are supposed to plan. We're supposed to think ahead. There's supposed to be some organization in our lives, and there's got to be some administration in our lives just to function. Uh, that's just how life works. So the mind of man plans his way. You, you, you probably have some thoughts about your career. Uh, if, if you're just getting started, you have some hopes and dreams, and you have some goals and some things you want to achieve. And maybe where you are right now, you're a little bit unsettled because it's not quite a fit. So you're praying and thinking about a position that would better suit you and better fit you. Uh, perhaps you're thinking about a promotion where you could better use your gifts and your skills. Uh, some of us are at a different place. Some of us are winding down. Some of you guys have been working for 40 years. And you're not looking for a promotion. You're looking to ease out. You're looking to make a transition. You're facing a new chapter in life. Uh, you're in your 60s. You're a completely different place than guys who are in their 20s. And, and you see, that's got to be thought through. And you're making plans and you're thinking and you're saying, now how do I do this? And how The mind of man plans his way. But the Lord directs his steps. There you have the human aspect, and there you have the sovereign aspect. We make our plans, we set our course, we seek wisdom, we do the best that we can do. But as we go through life, and as we go through the chapters of life, there is an invisible hand that is overseeing our lives. Uh, there is a sovereign one who has a will and has a purpose and has a direction. And he has something that he wants to accomplish in your life and in my life. Uh, we're not always aware. Were you aware of the sovereignty of God before you became a Christian? Were you aware of his invisible hand on your life before you came to know him? I'm curious. Any of you guys here, 
when you were a kid? Did you, did you have, uh, were you swimming and you almost drowned? Anybody? I'm not going to call on you. Yeah, I see one, two, three, four, five. I see a bunch of hands. But you see, you didn't drown, did you? You know why you didn't drown? Because the sovereign hand of God was on your life. My boy Josh, when he was about two, we lived in Little Rock. We were visiting my brother, Mike, in Coppell. We were, you know, so between us, we've got how many kids? Seven, eight kids. They're all little, under nine years old. We're, we're barbecuing, and then we're going to have the babysitter, and we're going to go see the movie Top Gun. This was like an 80, I don't know, 84 maybe. And it's pretty chaotic. We just finished eating, and I just changed Josh's diaper, and, you know, and we're getting ready, and we're trying to get to the movie in time. And as I'm walking down the hallway in Mike's house towards the bedrooms to change clothes, I just changed Josh's diaper. I'm walking down that hallway... And all of a sudden, there's chaos, kids are screaming, all that. It just hit me. Where's Josh? No. I'd just seen him, you know, three minutes ago. But the thought comes, where's Josh? Why would I think that at that moment? God put it into my mind, because where Josh was, was in the bottom of the swimming pool. And I didn't know it. I thought, where, I, I literally, I thought, where's Josh? And I stopped, and I looked around, and I didn't see him. And then I noticed the back door to the pool was cracked open. And I took a few steps, and I looked, and I could see him in the bottom of the pool. So I lit out, and I yelled out as loud as I could, Mike! I didn't know where he was, my brother. I yelled louder than that. And I went into that pool, and I knew Mike would hear me and be right behind me. I went into that pool... I went down and I grabbed him and I came up and he spit out water and started crying and then I started crying I did I just about lost it and uh, and he was okay and then we got everything together and we went on uh, to see Top Gun and to this day I have no idea what that movie is about all I know is there was a jet. <laughs> the adrenaline, it took me three days. It took me three days to get over that. Some of you guys had a similar. Isn't it amazing that you got your driver's license in high school and you're still alive? <laughs> We've all got stories. That is the sovereign hand of God. And maybe you didn't come to know Christ until you were 20 years old. Do you know that the sovereign hand of God was on your life before you came to know him? There's an interesting passage in Hebrews 1. Uh, turn over there if you would, just for a minute. <clears throat> Hebrews 1, uh, the context, it's talking about the superiority of Jesus Christ over angels and the fact that he's greater than the angels. And in the context of speaking of the angels, in verse 14, it says, Are they not all ministering spirits, meaning angels, sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Uh, in a, there is a sense, there is a sense where we... We have been justified because of what Christ has done on the cross. We are in the process of walking with him. That's our sanctification. One day, and this is another aspect of salvation, we'll be glorified. Our bodies will be changed, and we will not be as we are today. Uh, there won't be any sickness. There won't be any infirmities. It's going to be great. But we're not there yet in terms of glorification. What this is saying is... Uh, what this is saying is, is that there are angels that are sent out by God. And this isn't the stuff that's on TV, that, that kind of angel stuff. There's a biblical doctrine of angels. And if you want to really read something that's good on it, read Billy Graham's book on angels. Uh, I think it's quite possible when we get to heaven, we'll look back and we'll see, God will enable us to see where angels ministered to us. 
and we didn't know it. Some have entertained angels unaware. That's why we're to show hospitality. There's some amazing stories that missionaries have about the ministry of angels. Before you came to know Christ, angels were ministering to you in your life and preserving your life, even before you knew him. And you can take it further back than that. Do you remember when you didn't exist? It's no, no, it's so profound I can't even follow it. That's when you were married. You know, you're going to get yourself in trouble. You, you, you don't want to start that. There was a time when you didn't exist, but then you came into existence. Uh, Psalm 139 talks about the fact that God brought us into existence. Uh, beginning with verse 13, David talks about the fact that he is fearfully and wonderfully made. He talks about God putting him together in his mother's womb and giving him his strengths and giving him his weaknesses. Uh, every, everyone has strengths. Everyone has weaknesses. Uh, God gives us abilities. God gives us skills. He, he puts those things in us when he forms us and fashions us in our mother's womb. And then he goes on in Psalm 139 and he says, Thine eyes have seen my unformed substance. What's unformed? Well, it means unformed. Uh, when you were sperm and egg, God knew you. You know what God said to the prophet Jeremiah? He said in the first chapter of Jeremiah, he said, before I formed you, I knew you. God knew you before you existed. So that means he was at work in the lives of your parents. Because if he wasn't at work in the lives of your parents, your parents wouldn't have gotten married, and you wouldn't have been conceived, and you wouldn't have been born. So you see, not only was God's hand on your life, but he was on the life of your parents. You see, my parents weren't Christians. His hand was still on them. And on your grandparents. And on your great-grandparents. And the, your whole family lineage, everybody's got a story. You know what? The hand of God was on your family and on individuals in your family. Because God wanted you to come into existence. What, what does it say there? Thine eyes have seen my un... In, in Psalm 139, thine eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in thy book... They were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. That's staggering, isn't it? It's just mind-boggling. So, anybody in here have a new baby or a new grandbaby? Anybody? Yeah, right here. Boy, girl? What's his name? Yeah. <laughs> It's Brendan. It's all right. You're sure he belongs to your family. <laughs> I'm kidding you. How old is he? Five months. five months. Okay. So he's five months old. Now, two years ago, did you know about Brendan? Yeah. God knew about him. God knew about him 100 years ago. God knew about him 1,000 years ago. If you have a little child, I was talking to a guy today. He's got a little son who's uh, four weeks old. Huh. He didn't know about that boy a year ago. God knew about that boy. Because, see, God, in order for that little boy to be born, God had to be working in the lives of the parents. What, I, what, I, what I'm saying to you guys is this. A lot of these Proverbs, they're significant and they're full of meaning, but because they're packed in one after the other, we go from one to the other to the other without stopping and really pondering what's there. The mind of man plans his way. You're doing that. But as you're planning your way, the Lord is directing your steps. The invisible hand is always active in your life at all times, even when you don't realize it, even before you existed, he brought you into existence. And his hand is still upon you today. No matter what you're facing, 
no matter what challenges, no matter what difficulties, no matter what setbacks have occurred in your life, the sovereign hand of God is upon your life, leading you, guiding you, getting you to an appointed place at an appointed time. He has a work for you to do. We don't always know what that work is, but he knows. Now, does he violate our wills? No. We have wills, we make choices, we make our, our, our choices to the best of our ability. And as we do that, sometimes we screw up. Sometimes we make really, really bad decisions. You know what's great about God? God is sovereign over our screw-ups. God is sovereign over our errors. God is sovereign over our mistakes. That's what's so great about reading the biographies and the scriptures. These men screwed up. These men made mistakes, but God was still sovereign in their lives. And he's sovereign in your life, and he's sovereign in my life. I want to couple this proverb, Psalm, uh, Psalm, Proverbs uh, 16, with one in Proverbs 21, verse 1, which says this. <clears throat> the king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it whatever way he wishes. Quite a statement. A staggering statement. I grew up in the San Joaquin Valley in California, the agricultural region uh, that runs north of Los Angeles. Uh, you go north of LA about 100 miles and you're in mountains and then you dip down into the San Joaquin Valley. Uh, that valley is 100 miles wide. It's about 700 miles long. It runs all the way up to Redding. It's, it's the single most fertile agricultural region on the face of the earth. Um, I've, I've been reading about the Boswell family. Never heard of the Boswells. Uh, they have the largest ranch and farm in the United States. You can drive 150 miles up Highway 99, and uh, you're still within the borders of their, of their farm, not to mention how wide it is. Uh, talking about the growers in California, this book that I've been reading, and uh, uh, these were men that had, took a lot of risk. These were men that were, uh, you know, tobacco-chewing, spitting, fighting guys that, that tamed that region that was pretty dry and pretty arid, and they had to irrigate it. Uh, one of these guys was from Georgia, and he built a beautiful antebellum white mansion in, in, right in the middle of the San Joaquin Valley. And this beautiful river just curved graciously right in front of it and went along the border of his property. Uh, someone commented when they saw his home that he had picked a beautiful site next to that river. He said, no. He said, when I built this place, the river wasn't here. I redirected the river. See, he was more proud of redirecting the river than he was of the house. Uh, men can do great things through engineering. We can redirect rivers. We can create lakes. We can do the Tennessee Valley Authority. It's amazing what we can do. We can build Boulder Dam. But, the mind, but, but, but couple this. The mind of man plans his way. The Lord directs his steps. The king's heart. Who's the king? The king's the most powerful man in that country. We don't know anything about kings because we've never lived under kings. We're Americans. I mean, we got started by fighting a king. But people who live under kings know that kings have absolute authority. What the king says is the way it is. But the king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it whatever way he wishes. Do you know what that means? As you walk through life, you will encounter people who have more power than you do. You will encounter people that have, in a sense, a degree of control over your life and over your future. Uh, sometimes those people will like you and help you. Sometimes those people will not like you and will do everything they can do to frustrate the goals and dreams of your heart. That can be a very difficult thing to be in a position where you're working for someone who is against you. And some of you guys are there right now. When those things happen, we get very frustrated, we get... Uh, we get angry, 
and we get mad because so many of us are result-oriented as men. Um, years ago, when I was down at Dallas Seminary, uh, they gave us a number of personality tests, and I failed everyone. <clears throat> On one of the tests, they would describe your personality, and uh, in all three elements of this test, I came out result-oriented. When I'm not seeing results, when I'm not seeing progress, when I'm not getting ahead, I get frustrated and I get angry. And many of you guys are the same way. When someone is standing in our way, we get upset. And it'll keep us up at night. And we start thinking and we start, and we start making plans. And, we, and, and, and not that we shouldn't. But what do you do in a situation like that? What do you do when you're closed in and you're locked in? What do you do when your dreams die? What, what do you do when the bottom falls out of your life? You pray and you inquire of God. I woke up last night at 1.30. And uh, I'm not one of those, I don't have a lot of dreams that I, you know, I, don't, I just don't that I'm aware of. Maybe I do and I don't. I'm just not that deep. I don't remember dreams if I dream. But last night I woke up because I had been dreaming about two things that I was concerned about. And uh, I was wide awake. I couldn't go back to sleep. So I got up and I went in the front room. And I was going to pray about these two issues that were just absolutely on the front of my mind. But before I started to pray about the two issues, I went back and I said, Lord, before I address these two issues, which are on my mind and I'm concerned about, I just want to thank you for your faithfulness in my life for 55 years. And I went all the way back and I, I said, Lord, I want to thank you that I was born into the family that I was born in. We don't choose families, but you, you gave me a great dad, you gave me a great mom. Not everyone has that. I had it. That's just pure grace. I thank you for that. I thank you that you steered me and navigated me. I thank you that you gave me a great wife who understands me. I thank you, Lord, that, and I just started going through, and I, I thank you that when we moved to Texas, how you worked, and how you did this, and how you did this. I took about 20 minutes just to rehearse in my mind and to look back on the faithfulness of God. What I was doing, I was looking back and seeing his invisible hand on my life. I just wanted to remember. And you know what happened? Before I got to praying about the two things, I spent about 20 minutes doing it. By the time I rehearsed all those things in my head and got to the point where I wanted to specifically mention those two things, my anxiety level had gone down real low because I was reminded of the faithfulness of God. I was reminded of the invisible hand. And, and see, when I woke up, I couldn't quite figure how to navigate these two things. You know what? I don't have to know right now how to navigate them. He'll show me how to navigate them at the right moment, at the right time. You guys know what I'm talking about, don't you? Turn back with me to Exodus 1. I want to illustrate these two Proverbs. And here's, here's my point. Here's what I want to do tonight. For those of us that are in the middle of difficult chapters, for those of us who have had the bottom drop out, for those of us who are disappointed, for those of us who can't seem to get ahead, for, for those of us that are facing circumstances that quite frank, frankly, in the human sense, uh, you'll never beat. There's just too much stacked against you. I, I want us to remember those two Proverbs, and I want us to go back and look at the life of Moses. Because Moses exemplifies those two Proverbs. And if you recall, in Exodus 10, in speaking of the Old Testament, it says that these things were written for our instruction. 
The reason God has the Old Testament and the stories in the Old Testament is to encourage our hearts. We're not the first guys to walk the earth. We're not the first guys to go through difficult circumstances. We're not the first guys to have the odds stacked against us. We're not the first guys to have enemies. We're not the first guys to be in situations that threaten to absolutely destroy our lives. The invisible hand is all the way through the Bible. You remember Joseph. Joseph uh, and his brothers, those guys comprise the 12 tribes of Israel. The brothers sold Joseph into slavery. You know that story. He wound up being promoted after a lot of testing and a lot of disappointment. He wound up being promoted to being the second most powerful man in Egypt. And God put him there to administrate the wealth of Egypt for seven years so that they could get through the famine, which would last for seven years. His brothers show up to get food. He winds up revealing himself to his brothers, and they bring his father and his brothers. And they all come to Egypt, and they locate um, in a gated community, a new subdivision called Goshen. And as the years went by and Joseph died, uh, I, I believe the scripture says there were 75 of them. The brothers and the dad and their kids, 75. Well, as the years went by, they proliferated. And God's hand was on them. And they had kids and kids and kids and kids. And you get to Exodus 1, and it says in verse 8, Now a new king arose over Egypt. Catch that, a king, a pharaoh. A new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph, didn't know the story of Joseph. But all he did, if you read the next verses, he looked around and he said, all these Israelites, they're everywhere. There's more of them than there is of us. And what they had done was they had turned the Israelites into their slaves. And all these great building projects the Israelites were doing. Verse 12 says, there's so many of them that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. So the king decides he's going to take some action. Verse 15, the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives. Uh, verse 16, he said, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall put him to death. If it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. And they gave an excuse to Pharaoh that the women give birth so quickly, we, we just can't do this. Um, have you ever heard a young couple, they're talking about children and considering having children, and, and you might hear them say, uh, I could never bring a child into a world like this. You've heard that. You know, there has never, ever, since Adam and Eve walked out of the garden, there has never been a good time to bring a child into the earth. Because the earth and the people on the earth have always been screwed up. And there have always been difficult times. And uh, the majority has never been moral. Uh, it's always a moral minority known as a remnant. Uh, if you're going to wait until things are good on the earth to bring a child into the earth, you'll never have a child. God said, be fruitful and multiply. Psalm 127 says that children are a gift of the Lord. So here you have Moses. Now we're, we're going to be introduced to Moses. And here are his parents. And they find out that she's pregnant. I got to tell you, there had to be some fear. If you were those parents, if you found out that your wife was pregnant, and what is the king? Who's the king? The most powerful guy. I mean, he, he Hey, they didn't have three branches. They had one branch, and it was the king. And the king says, if it's a boy, he dies. Don't you think there was some fear? Don't you think there was some anxiety? Don't you think there was some trepidation? Lord, what are you doing? This is not a good time to have a child. You know what? It was the perfect time to have a child. Because, see, God, see God's perspective is always much larger than ours. We're, we're always so present tense. Our circumstances, we're focused on where we are right here and what's now and all that. But see, God's looking at generations. And see, God had something he was going to do 80 years down the road. That's why it was the perfect time for Moses to be born. Although, from a human perspective, it was the worst of times. So this kid's born. So what do they do? You know the story. They get together a little 
basket and put some pitch in there and that whole thing and they make this little miniature ark if you will and they put this little kid in the ark and his sister Miriam takes him down to the Nile kind of an obscure place and he's kind of floating there and you know he's uh, uh, he, he's just in the bulrushes and, and uh, she's kind of keeping her eye on him well one day Pharaoh's daughter by chance <laughs> I love this there is no chance. You imagine God's up there and God's looking down there and he goes, hey, there's Pharaoh's daughter. She's going over there. I can't wait to see what's going to happen. <clears throat> you know why she showed up there that day? He sent her there. The mind of man plans his way. You know, maybe she's going over here to the spa. You know, that's the deal. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. She sees this, and they find Moses. And her heart went out. Now, you know what? She could have said, this is one of those Hebrew kids. Why is this kid alive? Take this kid and kill him. She didn't say that. Why not? Because the king's heart and the king's daughter's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it whatever way he wishes. So she looks upon this little guy with favor. And her heart goes out. And you know what? She decides she's going to take this kid and raise this kid. And Moses' sister, Miriam, steps up and said, Would you like me to get a maid from the Hebrews to take care of this child? She said, Yes, go do that. So not only is Moses going to be raised in Pharaoh's household, but his mother is going to be the one who raises him. Is that not wild? Who could have thought of that? Who could have planned that? Who could have put that in their seven-year strategic plan? They just had, yeah, you see, there'd been anxiety, there'd been worry, there'd been concern. How in the world is this ever going to work out? He knows how. It's going to work out. What were the odds of something like that happen? You don't worry about odds. There's a God who's running your life. There's a God who's running the show. And, and you've got to remember, they were in the worst of circles. They thought this kid was going to lose his life. And he, what if they find him out? They did find him out, and now he's going to be raised in the palace. This is great stuff. So what happens to this kid? He's raised as a son of Pharaoh. That's what happens to him. Here's what, um, here's what F.B. Meyer had to say about Moses. Moses was brought up in the palace, and he was treated as the grandson of Pharaoh. When he was old enough, he was probably sent to be educated in the college which had grown up around the Temple of the Sun and has been called the Oxford of Ancient Egypt. Stephen, the martyr, in Acts 7.22 says that Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was the only Jew that this was true of. But Moses was something more, Meyer goes on and says, than a royal student. He was a statesman and he was a soldier. Did you guys know this about Moses? This is, this is really interesting. Stephen tells us that he was mighty in words and deed. Mighty in words, there is the statesman. Mighty in deeds, there is the soldier. The Jewish historian, Flavius Josephus, says that while Moses was still in his early manhood, the Ethiopians invaded Egypt routed the army sent against them, and threatened the Egyptian city of Memphis. In the panic, the oracles were consulted, and on their recommendation, Moses was entrusted with the command of the royal troops. He immediately took to the field, surprised and defeated the enemy, and captured their principal city, and returned to Egypt laden with the spoils of victory. That's what the historian Josephus says about Moses. So, Moses was just going to be a slave like all these other guys. But due to the sovereignty of God, by chance, he winds up in Pharaoh's house. He turns into a statesman. He turns into a soldier. He is a leader. Now, Moses was no dummy. 
Moses, as he grew and as he matured and as he looked around, it became very clear to him that he was not in that palace just for his own personal pleasure and well-being. As he got older and his mom told him the story and the history and all this, and he began to realize that his, you know, his dad and his aunts and his uncles and his cousins, they're all out there working as slaves. One day it hit him, there's a reason I'm in here. And one day it became clear to him, I'm in here for a reason. And you know what Moses picked up on? He picked up on that God has strategically placed him there to lead those people out. Flip over to Acts 7. We learn this from Stephen's account before the Jewish council. This is really interesting stuff about Moses. Uh, Stephen's kind of given a history lesson to the Jewish uh, uh, big dogs, the Sanhedrin. And he's reminding them, and he, and he talks about Moses. It was at the, in verse 20, it was at this time Moses was born, and he was lovely in the sight of God. He was nurtured three months in his father's home. After he'd been set aside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. Don't forget that. We'll come back to it. When he was approaching the age of 40, catch this, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. When he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. So he's defending one of his brothers. And he winds up killing this Egyptian guard. Verse 25, here's his motivation in doing that. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him. But they did not understand. Moses was 39 years old. He figured out, I'm here to set these people free. So on this given day... He steps up, defends this guy, and in his mind, what's going to happen is the people are going to say, this guy, and they knew who he was, this guy is one of us, this guy is going to be our Messiah, this guy is going to save us, this is the guy that God has appointed us to lead us out of here. He thought they would understand that. And you know what happened? They didn't understand it. He understood it. Now let me ask you something. Was Moses right in terms of understanding what God was going to do through him. Was he correct? Yes. He just was 40 years off. Sometimes we have things in our heart that we would like to do. We, we, have, we have dreams. We have a vision. We have a desire and it's pretty specific. It's really interesting to study not only Moses, but to study church history and, and the lives of men because oftentimes this happens to men other than Moses. There'll be something in their heart, but what'll happen is they'll misfire and they'll try to pull it off prematurely on their own by manipulating circumstances and it falls flat. Absolutely, they fall flat on their face. They're right, but what happens is they're off on the timing. Uh, at this point, the life of Moses is going to change. Now, remember the verse. The mind of man plans his way. Have you ever laid out plans and they didn't work? <laughs> yeah, all the time. Have you ever been humiliated? You know what we fear as men? We fear failure. You know what women fear? Women fear being used by men who take advantage of them. You probably don't fear that. You fear failure. If there's one thing we don't want to do as men, we don't want to fail. We want to achieve. We want to make it. We want to mark those goals off as we progress through life. We hate failure. Moses failed in front of everybody. When Pharaoh finds out, Moses has got to run for his life. This was not turning out the way that he had anticipated.
What was Moses? The mind of man plans his way. What was Moses' plan? Is that I'm going to step in. These people are going to recognize I've got a connection to Pharaoh. God has put me in this position. I've got his favor. He's on my team. I'm going to discuss this with him. I'm going to persuade him because I'm a man of power in, in words and in deeds. I've shown my loyalty. This is the perfect setup, and I'm going to lead these people out of here, and all this suffering is going to be over with. That was in the mind of Moses. That was his plan, and it didn't happen. What happens is he's got to run for his life because when Pharaoh discovers what has happened back in Exodus 2, when he finds out what has happened in verse 15, it says, when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. If you have, if you have your Bible open to Exodus 2, I'd like you to note, note verse 15 all the way down to verse 25. For the next, here's what happens to Moses. Now remember this, guys. He's the grandson of Pharaoh. He's got it made. He's a statesman. He's a military hero. He's living the good life. He's got a condo on a golf course. He's driving a Lexus chariot. This guy has got it made. And suddenly, overnight, he's on the run. And he goes to a place called Midian. Now, why did he go to Midian? Because nobody in their right mind would go to Midian. When you drive uh, from Southern California into Arizona, there's a point where you hit the high desert, and you're into the Mojave Desert. And you'll see a sign, there's a gas station, it'll say something like, it used to say, like, glass gas for 110 miles. And there's some old gas station, and there's some guy with no teeth, and he's got a dog with no teeth. And... <laughs> It's just really a bad place. Nobody in their right mind would have a gas station on the edge of the Mojave Desert. That's the way Midian was. Moses went to Midian because he could get lost in Midian. They weren't going to pursue him. Um, if you note verse 15 down to verse 25, those are 10 verses. Those 10 verses describe the next 40 years of his life. 40 years get 10 verses. You know what that means? That means not much was happening. That means Moses wasn't real productive. Uh, what happened was Moses' life absolutely fell apart. And, and, and if I could write a word over verses 15 to 25, I'd write the word regret. Regret. Moses had the perfect setup. Who else would ever be in that position in order to relieve the suffering and give those people a new life? Who? Nobody. And he knew that, and he blew it. Some of us have blown it big time. And the word that's on our mind all the time as we look back is the word regret. If I could just get that back. If I could just do that over again. I had a plan. It fell apart. If it had gone through, it would have been great. But it didn't go through. See, the mind of man plans his way. We see the failure. We, we, we see the fact of broken dreams. We see what could have been, and we live with regret. The and as you're doing that, the mind of man plans his way, and the mind of man looks back, and the man regrets. But the Lord directs his steps. For the next 40 years, Moses is a zero. Uh, Moses, uh, you know what's happening to Moses here? M Moses is, uh, here's what's happening. God, in this chapter of Moses' life, and this was not in Moses' plan, uh, God is sending Moses back to school. He didn't want to go to school. He wanted to lead those people out. But Moses had to go back to school and get a master's degree. Uh, Moses, these next 40 years of Moses' life, let me tell you what's going on. He went back to school to get an MCA, not an MBA, an MCA. What is an MCA? An MCA is a master's in character acquisition. See, the fact of the matter is, Moses in his heart understood what God wanted to do, but he wasn't ready yet because quite frankly he'd been too successful
up until this point. Everything had gone, gone his way. He'd been a golden boy. He knew nothing about defeat. He knew nothing about being brokenhearted. He knew nothing about having his dreams dashed. Moses was very capable. Oh, you got a city that's been overtaken? Great, I'll march all night and we'll take it back. And he did. Sometimes, sometimes we are too strong for God to use us. Sometimes we are too capable for God to use us. And as a result, we look at our gifts and we look at our strengths. Oh, I've been successful with this company. Good for you. But Deuteronomy 8.18 says, it is he who gives you the power to make wealth. Have you done well? You know why you've done well? Because the good hand of God has given you the gift and skills, and he sent people your way, and he's prospered your business. That's why you've done well. So give God glory and give God credit. Everything Moses had touched had worked. And you see how, how many guys would try to pull off an exodus and lead two million people out. Do you realize what he would do to the Egyptian economy by doing this? But see, did that stop him? No, because he was supremely confident. Not in God. He was confident in himself. Years ago, I heard Chuck teach on this passage and he specifically nailed the account in Exodus 2 when Moses defended his brother, his, his, Egyptian, uh, his Jewish brother against the Egyptian master. In verse 12, it says in 11, he saw the brother being beaten. Verse 12, it says, so he looked this way and that. When he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the, hit him in the sand. Here's what Chuck said. Chuck said, he looked this way and he looked that way, but he never looked this way. That's why Moses wasn't ready. He was self-reliant. So he's going to go back to school for 40 years. And for 40 years, he lived in failure and he lived in misery. And quite frankly, he was finished and he was done and there was no, I mean, it was over. It was flat out over. God still sends men. Oh, by the way, nobody in their right mind would ever sign up for an MCA degree. No one ever asked God for an application. Because if you know what is involved in the curriculum, there's no way you're going after this degree. So what happens is, is that God will sign you up for it. Against your will, and against your plans and against your desire. The mind of man plans his way. Oh, at 40 or 45 or 50, I'm going to be here, here, here. No, but the Lord directs your steps. You're going to be back here getting an MCA. Moses took at least four courses in the desert. Can I give them to you real quickly to summarize the 10 years? Number one, he took unemployment 101. He had been a prince. Uh, uh, now he's a shepherd with a bunch of sheep. That, that's what you call downsizing. That's what you, you ever applied for a job and they look at your resume and they say, you know, you're overqualified. Moses was overqualified. He was, used, he was ready to lead a nation and he's dealing with sheep. Maybe that's where you are. Nobody recognizes your gifts. Nobody recognizes your ability. No, you know what's happened? God has just hemmed you in. And maybe you're having trouble making it, and maybe you can't get hired, and maybe you're in a time of prolonged unemployment. Can I remind you that the hand of God controls? It's called providence. And the term providence comes from the same root where we get our word provide. See, God only creates, but God sustains what he creates. If you're unemployed, it's because God has a reason for you being unemployed. He's going to teach you some lessons through being unemployed that you don't learn when everything's going your way financially because he's getting you ready for something. Here's the second course Moses took. Moses took advanced obscurity. This guy, hey, when Moses went into a restaurant, he didn't need reservations. He didn't get in line. They took him right in. Got a table right by the lake. I mean, he was, he was the man, Moses. It's Moses. It's Moses. 
Nobody's saying that for 40 years. Nobody's around to say it. He's all by himself. He's absolutely obscure, and he's unrecognized. And there were no self-esteem books to read. And there were no motivational seminars to go to to help him feel better about himself and where he was in life. He had no CDs to listen to. He's just obscure. Uh, another course he took was remedial waiting. Remedial waiting. If there's anything that men hate to do, we hate to wait. We hate it. Because you see, we got plans. And we want to achieve, and we want to, we want to do things. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And God not only directs your steps, but the timing of your steps. Uh, at some point in your life, you're going to be delayed. You're going to be put on perpetual hold. And it's going to drive you nuts. But the timing of God is always worth waiting for. But what happens when you're waiting? You think, well, you know, this will be over in about 90 days, and then it's not over. Well, this will be over in six months, and then it's not. And it just, and then what happens is you start losing hope because nothing's changing. There's a great verse in Isaiah 64, 4 that says this. No eye has seen a God like thee who works for those who wait for him. Did you catch that? See, we get upset when we're waiting because we're just waiting. We think nothing's happening. But while you're waiting, God is working. You just can't see it. No eye has seen, Isaiah 64, 4, no eye has seen a God like thee who works for those who wait for him. As Moses was waiting, God was working very slowly, but he was still working. The other course that uh, Moses took was intermediate loneliness. He had no friends. He had nobody enjoyed, you know, another guy being in their company. Nobody to go fishing with, no one to play ball with. No. There'll be a time in your life when you'll be lonely. There'll be a time in your life. See, obscurity and loneliness tend to go together. Nobody's seeking you out. That was a tough time in his life. For 40 years, it was that way. And I'm sure Moses, he was just waiting to die. He was just living out of string. Now let me tell you what happened to Moses during this 40 years. You know when you take your car in for an oil change, the first thing they do is they get underneath it and they pull out that drain plug and all that oil comes out. This is what God has to do with men who are capable men and gifted men. God has to get them in a place and he pulls the drain plug on their self-confidence. Because God's going to do it his way and not your way. For 40 years, uh, what happened? This guy was so capable and so confident. You know what? He lost all his confidence. He lost it all. And if you don't believe that, you still with me? Are you? Okay. I'm going to be done about 11 tonight. Now, we're wrapping this up. I want you to see this in chapter 3. He sees his burning bush. If you guys were here for Ken Miedema's concert, he has this great song that he does on Moses. It's just powerful. But you know the story. Moses is out there. He's with the sheep. He sees, uh, verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. Uh, the Lord appears to him. God says in verse 5, take off your sandals. You're on holy ground. God tells him who he is. In verse 6, verse 7, God says, I've seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. 8, I'm going to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians. I'm going to take them into a great land. Verse 10, therefore come now and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Now catch this, verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? 
was there a personality change in this guy? Did this guy need to go to a Tony Robbins seminar? Yeah. Do you see what happened to this guy in 40 years? He'd gone from being overly confident, and now he's got no confidence at all. God says, all right, hey, you know what? I want you to go do this. He goes, well, who am I? I'm nobody. I'm, hey, that's what he was. He wasn't saying that 40 years ago. This sucker had had all of his confidence drained out of him. And then God tells him who I am, you know, verse 14. Uh, verse 19, he tells them that he's going to go, but I know, now catch this, verse 19. But I know that the king of Egypt, Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. God already knew what Pharaoh was going to do and that God was going to have to compel him because the king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it whatever way he wishes. God was going to work Pharaoh like that cotton grower in California worked that river. So God's laying all this out before Moses. Chapter 4. And Moses has all these objections. He had no objections when he was 39. Now he's full of objections. Moses said in verse 4, What if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, The Lord has not appeared to you. The Lord said, What's that in your hand? He said, A staff. He said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses fled from it. Moses still had wisdom. He flees from this obviously poisonous snake. Now catch this. But the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. Now, that's not how you do it. Is it? You don't reach out and grab a poisonous snake by its tail. Unless... God says, that's how I want you to do it. See, Moses had to get to a place where he was willing to do exactly what God said, even if it didn't make a lot of sense. But self-confident guys won't do that. They question. See, in this brief moment of time, he obeys, and he reaches out, and he grabs a snake by the tail, and it became a staff in his hand. But Moses is still working this through. Verse 6, the Lord said, put your hand in your bosom. He put his hand in his bosom. When he took it out, it was leprous like snow. The Lord said, put your hand in your bosom again. He put his hand in the bosom again. When he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you or heed the witness of the first sign, they'll believe the witness of the last sign. God was going to give him signs to show to Pharaoh. And then in verse 9, God was going to allow him to turn water into blood. Now catch verse 10. This is wild. Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past. That wasn't true. In Acts 7.22, Stephen said of Moses that he was a man who was powerful in what? Words. And in deeds. Or actions. Do you see how self-depleted this guy was? If the truth were to be known, that's where some of you guys are. You've had a huge setback. You've had a huge disappointment. Nothing is going your way. And you're thinking you're finished. And you're thinking your best days are behind you. And it really doesn't add up. And you really don't think the desires of your heart will ever be realized. You really don't. God says to him, the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Verse 11. Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? You remember in John 9... When there was a man that Jesus encountered who was blind from birth, and they asked him, Who sinned, this man or his parents? And God said, Jesus said, by the way, who was God? Jesus said, Neither. But basically, this man was born this way that the works of God, the power of God, might be displayed in his life. God allowed this guy to be born blind and live blind for many, many years so that one day the power of God could be demonstrated in his life. 
See, that's why stuff happens to you, and that's why stuff happens to me. God is sovereign over what happens in our lives. He is orchestrating the events of our lives, and he is allowing even our plans to be disrupted, and even for us to be questioning. But see, the invisible hand is still at work. Thomas Fuller said this about 400 years ago. Take a straight stick and put it into the water. Then it will seem crooked. Why? Because we look upon it through two mediums, air and water. There lies the deception. That is why we cannot discern it correctly. Thus the proceedings of God in his justice, which in themselves are straight. They seem to us to be crooked, that wicked men should prosper and good men be afflicted, that the Israelites should make the bricks and the Egyptians dwell in the houses, that servants should ride on horseback and the princes go on foot. These are things that make the best Christians stagger in their judgments. Why? They look upon God's proceedings through a double medium of flesh and spirit so that all things seem to go cross, though indeed they go right enough. Thomas Watson said this, God is to be trusted when his providences seem to run contrary to his promises. God promised David to give him the crown to make him king, but providence turns contrary to the promise. David was pursued by Saul, was in danger of his life. But all this while it was David's duty to trust God. God often works by cross providences in order to bring pass his promise. You see what this guy is saying? I'm walking with God. Why am I afflicted? The guy who's wicked, he's not afflicted. Why is that happening? It's because God is at work and his ways are not my ways. His thoughts are, my not, are, are, are not my thoughts. See, if it were, we say, Lord, why are you doing this? Why are things shaking out the way that you're, they are shaking? And you know, guys, there'll be periods where we will not understand. It may be that you will die without understanding. And if indeed that happens, the moment you die, out in the presence of Christ, here's what C.S. Lewis said. C.S. Lewis said that he believed when we would die and we would go to be in the presence of Christ, he believed that we would look around and that the first words out of our mouths would be, of course. Of course. Now we see in a mirror darkly, dimly, but then face to face. If he doesn't show you why, now, the moment you die, he will. The point is this. He's running the show. He's running the circumstances. He's allowed you to be afflicted. He's allowed you to experience a setback. And when he is ready to do the work that he has for you to do, no one can stand in your way. Not Pharaoh. Not your boss not an executive vice president, not this guy, not an in-law. No one can stand in the way because God will turn their hearts as he turned the heart of Pharaoh at exactly the right time. And you know what's, what I really love about when they went out of Egypt? They plundered the Egyptians. These people had nothing. They were slaves. But they went to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians gave them gold, silver. Hey, what else you want? You want my car? Whatever you want. Take it. Just get the heck out of here. God has a sense of humor. But we need to stay in the book. If you think you're finished, here's the point of this. If you think you're finished, you're not finished. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his step. And there's a God who turns anybody's heart in the way that he wants it to go. They cannot stand against you and against God's will for your life. 
and that is the absolute truth of the gospel. I hope you're encouraged. Let's pray. Lord, we often don't understand why we are in the place that we are in, as Moses didn't understand. But Lord, you were making him, you were, you were remodeling him, you were getting him ready for what you had in his life. You've got a different purpose for every guy in this room. We can't, we can't begin to understand it. We can't explain it. All we know is that you are God and that you are good and that you do good. We may not see it. It may look like the stick in the water that's bent, but it's not bent. It's straight. We just can't perceive it. So tonight, those of us who are discouraged, encourage us. Those of us who have lost hope, give us hope. Lord, do this by your spirit for every guy. Let him know your invisible hand is all over his life. We just need to submit to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.